0: Welcome back to another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. Today's show begins with a good news segment followed by a very impressive feats of strength segment. After that, we have a pretty long discussion about a recent Stronger by Science article that got published. The the article itself was about betaine supplementation, and we do talk specifically about the conclusions of that article, but we also have a much broader conversation. The body of betaine research is really just getting started there's not nearly enough evidence to have very very strong conclusions so our broader conversation talks a little bit about what it takes for us to decide that something is worth trying whether it's a, a training strategy or a supplement whatever it is we also talked a little bit about how much evidence we need in order for us to determine that something definitely doesn't work Overall, it ended up being a very, very constructive conversation about some kind of big picture theoretical aspects of how we interpret research as it comes out. After that, we have a brand new research roundup segment. We also answer a few off-topic questions from our fireside chat series, and that does it for this episode. As always, thank you very much for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your host, Eric Trexler. Today, I am joined by a very special temporary guest host named Greg Knuckles. Greg, thank you for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: Quick note, a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the content with this episode. We are finishing out our season uh, pretty soon here. So today's episode is going up uh, June 18th, and then we've got one episode after that on July 2nd. Uh, And after that, we are in our summer break. So we are planning to come back probably somewhere in the August, September timeframe. Uh, that's the plan for now. Uh, but we won't be gone the whole time. So in the interim period there, we will put out some random audio content here and there. Uh, so we won't totally disappear, but we are going to take a little summer break and then we'll be back with our regular episodes after that.
1: And in the interest of full transparency, that is mostly to appease the ghost of Steve jobs because the way, uh, you know i think like over half of our listeners are through iTunes uh and the way like iTunes podcasts work is if you're a podcast and you're not put publishing something at least every 6 weeks you stop like auto downloading when a new episode comes out so uh you know after our last episode we will have to put something out within at least 6 weeks um but yeah for for the most part we're going to be off for a bit
0: And whatever it is, it's going to be sick. I mean, it's going to be some of the freshest content you've ever seen. That's for sure. Probably. Okay, so that's the the bad news is the season's almost over. We're approaching our summer break, but we have good news as well. So for our good news segment, uh, why don't you start us off, Greg?
1: Yeah, so uh, have a bit of good news on the back of some bad news. So the bad news is uh, Metal, the powerlifting equipment brand, they make, you know, socks, belts, sleeves, wraps, suits, etc. Um, their uh, pr- president, I guess, owner, Anno, uh, Finnish guy, he uh, has said some not so great stuff. Uh, turns out he's been doing like kind of shitty stuff for years, but this may shock any of our Finnish listeners to learn not a lot of Finnish news actually makes it to the States. Um, so apparently you guys have known that Ano kind of sucks for a while, but like, we're just sort of figuring it out. Um, so anyway, that's not good. Uh, Elite FTS cut ties with metal, which props to Dave Tate for that. They've had a relationship for a long time. So, uh, that, that took guts to kind of distance themselves from the metal line. Um, and also I think most major powerlifting federations in the U.S., have said that they're no longer going to allow metal equipment at their meets. Um, So that put a lot of lifters in a tight spot, like, oh, damn, I just bought a new metal singlet, um, you know, three months ago, and now I can't use it in a meet. So the powerlifting equipment company SBD stepped up and said that they would replace all metal singlets and deadlift socks that people have bought in the last year, I believe. Um, I, I know that they extended that offer to all USAPL and USPA members. Um, I, I, have seen that a few other federations kind of signed on. I don't know if SBD has extended it beyond USAPL and USPA, but those are, are by far the largest, uh, organizations. That's where most people are competing these days. Um, so anyway, I thought that was really, really cool of SBD to do because, um, you know, I don't know what metal's sales figures are, but it can't be cheap to replace that many singlets and that many deadlift socks. Um, it was very much not something they had to do. Um, and I am about as cynical as a person can be. Um, so I, <laughs> I've seen some people on social media saying like, oh, like, they're just doing this for good PR. And it's just like, no, probably not. SPD is already incredibly well known. I think most people have generally positive associations with the brand. And like, even if they do get some good press out of it, they could have probably benefited more on like a per dollar basis by, I don't know, like a fucking ad campaign. Um, So anyway, I think that's really cool of SPD to step up and do that. Uh, and that is my good news.
0: Awesome. So my good news is not related to the lifting world in any way, uh, or at least not directly. Um, but I found, uh, an article on the internet indicating that there's been a pretty cool breakthrough in the world of, uh, sight restoration and prosthetic eyes. So, um, apparently a group of researchers created, you know, what, what the lay press headline calls a bionic eye. Um, but basically, uh, It's it functions as an eye, essentially, uh, completely, uh, completely made by by engineers. Um, And and so a recent paper in Nature kind of published this research group's findings. Uh, Like I said, some robotics engineers put this thing together and they're estimating that theoretically it could restore sight to like, I think they said about 285 million people theoretically. So uh, has has a lot of potential to be a huge breakthrough for visually impaired people, which is really awesome. They're hypothesizing that this could potentially be available uh, to actually use it outside of research settings uh, in maybe as short as five years. Uh, So pretty cool breakthrough that uh, should give a lot of hope to people who are visually impaired. That could be a really cool thing in the future. Um, It'll be interesting to see uh, as our... I'm speaking as somebody with literally no knowledge here. So... (laughs) Cut me some slack, but it seems like the the progress that's being made with tissue engineering and the progress that's being made with uh, with robotic engineering, we should see some really really cool things in the healthcare field over the next few decades. Uh, at least that that's the sense I get. Um, I also saw an article that apparently there's uh, some like brand new treatment that they're that they're researching for cauliflower ear. <laughs> um, so a very, very different uh, application in the healthcare field, but yeah, apparently they're they're using some kind of 3 d bioprinting technology uh, and they say that they could use this bioprinting technology to kind of restructure the shape of the outer ear. So it's not like critically important for being able to hear. But, uh, you know, I, I, I grew up in, in the wrestling world, you know, so I, I wrestled in high school. And I remember back then when you're a 16-year-old boy who wrestles, it's like if you don't have a cauliflower ear, you're definitely not cool, you're definitely not tough, and nobody takes you seriously. <laughs> so, like, every 16-year-old kid in the wrestling room is dying to develop the, the just most mangled cauliflower ear they could possibly acquire. And I would suspect that now – you know, 15, 20 years later, there are probably people who are like, man, I wish my ear didn't look like this anymore. <laughs> so, uh, so hey, maybe there's some good news for those people too.
1: I feel like cauliflower ear is one of those things that, I, I want to say like profile is the right word, but when you see someone and they have cauliflower ear, you know, both consciously and subconsciously, like, I just don't want to mess with that person. Yeah, because- There are very few people out in the world with cauliflower ear who didn't earn it, you know, like they, they've probably, they may not be particularly good at it, but they've probably engaged in some form of combat with other humans more than you have.
0: Yeah. And it also indicates they're not, they're not super concerned about being hit. Yeah. They're very comfortable with that. And they're very comfortable with assuming cosmetic damage in a fight. Yeah, (laughs) you know, so so whether or not they're good at fighting, you know that they're willing to assume some risks here that you might not be willing to assume.
1: Yeah, It's kind of like trying to aggressively like merge in traffic. If you see someone who has like a quarter million dollar car, they're going to let you in, you know, but if someone has like a 15 year old beater, dude, you need to you need to give them a lot of space because (laughs) they don't give a shit.
0: Yeah. They're, they're missing like two out of three, two out of four hubcaps and their, their mirrors like taped on with duct tape. Like yeah. dude, they're willing to take risks on the road. Correct. You know that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so a couple, um, couple biotechnological breakthroughs in the healthcare field. That's the good news. So, uh, getting back onto fitness related topics, uh, feats of strength, very popular segment where we keep people updated on strong people doing strong person things. So what do we have this week?
1: Yeah, so let's, uh, let's start in the world of strongman, actually. So um, I think everyone by now knows about Thor's deadlift record, uh, 501 kilos. But that was actually the first of kind of a, a series of record breaking attempts that uh, an organization is sponsoring. And I'm not sure what the schedule is. They might be doing like one a month, one every two weeks. I think it's like one every two weeks. Um, I don't know all of the details about that, but I do know that like Thor's was the first one. It was the one that was the most hyped up, but but kind of that series is still ongoing. And uh, the the two that have happened most recently is uh, Rhiannon Lovelace, um, who is a 64 kilo or approximately 141 pound a uh, strong woman competitor, broke the stone load world record for her weight class. Um, so it had been 139 kilos, which is 306 pounds, and she completed 141 kilos, which is 310 pounds. I think she was planning on trying 141, 151, and 161, um, and she just barely missed 151. So I, I think she had quite a bit more planned for that day. Um, and, you know, maybe just the peak didn't go well. I don't really know. Um, so it, it ended up being a little bit anticlimactic because her first attempt, she just smashed the world record. Um, <laughs> and then she missed after that. And the announcers didn't, the announcers didn't go as crazy about her breaking the world record as they did about Thor because like Thor was just going to work up to 501 bada bing bada boom that's it and for for Lovelace's attempts like she broke it on her first attempt and they're like ah whatever no big deal um, she only broke it by two kilos she's gonna go up so I, I don't think I don't think it got as much hype as it may be deserved um, but yeah she she broke that record and uh, she loaded it over a 44 inch uh, or onto a 44 inch or 110 centimeter, like, height. Um, so anyway, that's very cool. If you've never done stone loads, I don't think, (laughs) I don't think you know how heavy that is. (laughs) Like, stones are, uh, stones will humble you. Um, the, the most, the most I've ever loaded, I think, is somewhere around what she did. Uh, and, like, that would that would be terrible if i was a competitive strongman but if if you compete in strongman you know how hard stones are if you're a powerlifter or a bodybuilder and you've never messed with stone loading before um it's it's hard to to put in context just how impressive a 300 plus pound stone load is for anyone who's 140 pounds and certainly a 140 pound female competitor Um, Also in the world of Strongman, Rob Kearney broke the American record log press with uh, an attempt at 475.75 pounds, or 215.8 kilos. Um, So that broke the prior record. It's not the world record, I believe. Oh man, I should know this. Either Big Z or Eddie Hall has the world record, Uh, but Rob Kearney broke the American record which was pretty cool to see for a couple reasons. One is that, so he competes as a super heavyweight. The super heavyweight class in Strongman starts at above 105 kilos, and most of the best Strongmen in the world are very big. Uh, Rob Kearney is not, he's not like Brian Shaw or Thor size. Um, So it's, it's cool to see that level of success for, a super heavyweight strongman who who doesn't look like just a completely different species uh and secondly as well rob kearney is very openly gay like his instagram handle is "World strongest gay like he very much leans into that so for him to be able to break that record during pride month pretty cool uh moving on to power lifting uh our our uh, julius maddox watch segment what do you know He's still strong. Uh, and actually, I think, now that I think about it, I think he's competing this weekend to try to put up the first 800-pound bench press. I think uh, I think June 20th is, is the meet day.
0: Am Am I crazy, or did I hear about him uh, failing like with 780 or 790 a few weeks ago?
1: Uh, I might be
0: crazy. I, I saw people posting about it because the main takeaway that he actually might be a human being with some degree of limitations.
1: I do not remember that. Maybe it happened.
0: But anyway, go um, on.
1: But yeah, he hit 725 for a double. That's 329 kilos. Uh, shouldn't need to tell you that is a lot of weight and very impressive. Um Next is, uh, Russell Ori. He hit a gym squat of 715 pounds, which is 324 kilos. Uh, we talked about Russ leading up to, I believe it was raw nationals last year. Um, and he was putting up some just absurd numbers in the gym, especially on the squad. And at the time, we were saying his his depth looked questionable i think everyone could tell from his training videos depth looked questionable but depth had never been a problem in competition for him before um so we just kind of assumed it would work out on meet day and lo and behold he shows up at the meet uh does have depth issues gets red-lighted on depth his first two attempts has to just you know hit his opener on his third attempt just to stay in the meet uh, and didn't put up the numbers that people were kind of expecting him to hit. But it looks like his depth problems are, are sorted out. The 715 gym he hit was, uh, to my eye, convincing depth. He does currently have the record in that weight class of 691 pounds or 313 and a half kilos. That's the 83 kilo class, by the way. Um, so yeah, it looks like uh, he is stronger than he's ever been, has sorted out his, his depth issues on the squat, and is... Incredibly strong, uh, and finally, uh, more crazy stuff going on in the gym. Ashton Ruska, who I've heard rumors that he's permanently moving up to the one hundred five kilo class, but he has also competed at the ninety three kilo class. His current weight is like ninety eight kilos or two hundred seventeen pounds, so he's he's right in between the two. Um, but but he recently hit a gym total. Of uh, 958 kilos or 212 pounds, which is just bonkers. Um, so he competes in USAPL and IPF. Uh, and in terms of like stacking that number up against the tested records, it's ridiculous. So if he competed at 93 again, um, that would break Jesse Norris's all time record in that weight class. Uh, of 914 kilos or 2015 pounds. So break it by almost 100 pounds. <laughs> um, and the record at 93 is actually higher than at 105. Because Jesse Norris at his peak was just an absolute monster. The record at 105 is 902 and a half kilos or night or uh, 1989 pounds by Bryce Lewis. And um, 2112 is a bigger number than 1989 uh, by by a decent chunk and uh, (laughs) that gym total would actually only be like nine pounds under Kaler Wollum's untested record of 2121 uh, in the the 100 kilo or 220 pound weight class Um, so yeah that's that's absolutely nutty uh, he's, <laughs> Ashton has clearly been using quarantine time quite, uh, quite productively. One thing I will say about the, the videos of that gym total, uh, is he squatted 800 pounds and it's fairly obvious that his spotters have their hands on the plates. Um, I don't know the degree to which that helped, but I, I do think his squat is probably a bit less than 800. And so, His actual total would be a bit less than 2112. But, you know, it's still probably (laughs) still probably at least like 70, 80 pounds better uh, overall than anyone else in the world in his general weight classes, drug tested. Um, So anyway, that's that's fucking bonkers. I can't wait to see what he does the next time he's back on the platform.
0: All right. Good stuff. Okay, so moving on Um, every now and then on the show, we do a segment called Stronger by Science Article Discussion, where we discuss a Stronger by Science article that we recently published. We kind of keep the naming conventions really simple and straightforward. Um, So not too long ago, I forget exactly when the article went up, but I I wrote an article about betaine. And uh, if you're a longtime listener of the show, you've heard about betaine before. We've talked about it a few times. We even had an interview with Dr. Jason Kaliva, one of our first few interviews, actually, where we talked to him about some of his betaine research. So, I wanted to take an opportunity to talk a little bit about the article, but then transition to some kind of bigger picture ideas. Um, it was really interesting. So, you know, we'll talk a little bit about the conclusions of the article, but some of the feedback on the article kind of t- kind of touched on some of these really big ideas, these big themes in terms of how we assess supplement literature uh, and how we assess a body of literature that is small but growing. So at, when we're watching a body of scientific literature develop right before our eyes, what do we do with some of those very early preliminary findings when there's simply not enough evidence yet to say that we know conclusively what a supplement can or can't do. So let's start out with a very brief summary of what the, what the article, uh, Concluded basically. So there's a little bit of research looking at betaine on body composition effects, and a little bit looking at performance effects. Now, the body composition stuff is what really interests me. And and Greg, I know we've we've talked about this off air quite a bit, but betaine is really fascinating. They give this stuff to pigs all the time in in like the uh, agriculture livestock industry. And what's really fascinating about that, there there is research indicating that it, it does increase meat yield. Uh, and in some cases reduces subcutaneous fat uh, in pigs. What's interesting about that is that agriculture is a high stakes business. Yeah. uh, And and the scale of it is immense. So it seems very implausible to think that there's going to be a lot of farmers out there who are like, you know what, let's throw 40 grand at betaine this year and see what happens. You know what I mean? I mean, Mm -hmm. when, when you start thinking about the scale of some of these large livestock operations and how competitive the industry is
1: and just how much funding there is for livestock research.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it seems, uh, the data from pigs is pretty promising in terms of body composition effects. Um, that doesn't mean we're going to say, Oh, cool. Well, works in pigs. I'm sure it works for me, right? We want to see that human research as well. Um, but, but that is really kind of where a lot of, A lot of the interest comes from is seeing these positive effects uh, in in the livestock industry, specifically with pigs. Um, Now, when it comes to the human research uh, on on betaine's effects on body composition, the body of literature is actually pretty small. Unfortunately, Um, they tend to uh, a lot of the studies are kind of short term or use uh samples that are not completing any kind of exercise right so if we just give betaine to somebody who is you know not necessarily sedentary but uh just somebody who doesn't exercise and doesn't train um based on the the research there would really be no reason to suspect any notable changes there uh, mm-hmm. not really any notable changes when it comes to fat loss or muscle gain or anything like that you you give betaine to someone who's not training it doesn't seem to do much at all for body composition there is a couple studies saying oh maybe a slight reduction in body fat but it's it's not super convincing at this time however there there are a couple studies um showing some pre- pretty promising effects for body composition in humans the thing that's interesting is that the studies with the most promising effects uh tend to be you know decent in terms of their duration we're talking 6 or 8 weeks which is much better than a one or two week study uh, and they typically include uh, a pretty robust stimulus for muscle growth. So we, we've had Jason Caliva on the show. He ran a couple studies that showed, or, yeah, he ran a couple studies that showed pretty decent effects on body composition, fat loss, and, and muscle gain metrics. Um, and what was interesting about his studies were that he had a really nice training stimulus involved. You know, it was a, a solid training program created to induce hypertrophy. So, um, these kinds of studies that we have for body composition, like I said, very small body of literature. And, and, you know, we're talking about six or eight week studies here. So based on the number of studies, based on the duration of the studies, uh, there's really not enough here to form a definitive conclusion and say, Oh, yeah, if you add betaine into the mix, you are going to grow more muscle or lose more fat over the, the course of a training program. But what's interesting is the studies that are most relevant to most of our listeners that actually have that training component, do seem to have the most promising effects. So with body composition, I think it would be premature to to conclude, yes, this is definitely going to work, you know, put it on that tier of supplements with creatine where, you know, you feel really, really good about spending that money. I think it's promising, though. And so the, the way I approach uh, betaine recommendations for body composition purposes in the article is there's enough there to have some curiosity and to have maybe a little bit of optimism. So if you're approaching it as if you're kind of testing the waters and experimenting, I think that there's at least enough positive evidence there to make you feel good about engaging in the experiment, right? Whereas if we're talking about body composition, and it's something like branched chain amino acids, I'd be like, that experiment's been done. It's not going to be exciting, right? Mm -hmm. Betaine, because of because there's a small amount of data, but there is some promise there, I feel comfortable saying, yeah, you could justify experimenting with it.
1: Can I ask you a question uh, that doubles as a segue? Sure. Have you considered that maybe you're just a fucking sheep and Betaine does nothing and all of the research findings that, uh, that suggest that Betaine might do anything are are purely due to massive and extreme financial conflicts of interest.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I could address that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, um, I will. So after this article came out, there's kind of a resurgence of an infographic getting shared around. And the graphic basically indicates that when it comes to kind of a mixture of performance and body comp studies that. All the studies showing a positive effect of betaine have these, like, really egregious conflicts of interest, and all the studies that show no benefit of betaine are completely absent of conflicts of interest. And so it creates this kind of perfect dichotomy where, where the general idea is, if there is a conflict of interest, you will find a positive outcome. If there isn't a conflict of interest, you definitely won't.
1: That's a, that's a very tidy narrative
0: it's It is up until the point that you test it and determine if that's true
1: yeah if if that turned out to be the case, that would be a very tidy narrative
0: <laughs> yeah and so it it's just not it's just not really the case so um you know here here's one thing you could say you could say that the studies with the most promising outcomes do happen to have conflicts of interest, uh and that's fair that that would be accurate but but that narrative that it's this kind of perfect one-to-one correlation, uh, not factually accurate. And what's what's actually interesting is that I would argue that the conflicts of interest that matter the most are present in some of the studies reporting virtually no benefit at all.
1: Are, are you telling me that not all conflicts of interest are created equal?
0: That's exactly what I'm telling you. So I, I think that one of the things that's humorous is um, people assume like, I think people are viewing this from like the big pharma kind of perspective. Like, yeah, if you have some pharmaceutical company that's just feeding you study money for these like enormous clinical trials over the course of several years, yeah, that that's that's quite a cash cow, you know. Yeah. That that you're going back to, uh, you you wouldn't want that well to dry up, you know. So like, you you could see that there might be some conflict there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that would have to be it's not a deal breaker, but it'd have to be carefully managed and you'd want to take a close look at that and make sure everything's on the up and up. Yeah. Um The thing is the conflicts of interest with getting a supplement trial funded. It's like, it's usually like we will send you like six bottles of betaine and like 500 bucks. You know what I mean? so it's, it's not exactly the type of thing that you sell your soul for. And not
1: always the 500 bucks. And
0: not always the, yeah,
1: yeah it's, it's very, it's very often like, we'll send you some bottles of the supplement, we'll send you some bottles of the placebo and then you invest 6 months of your life to run this study.
0: <laughs> exactly. And by the way, the 500 bucks is not for the the per, the person running the study like hey, for your time, here's 500 bucks. The 500 bucks is either going to buy you know, 500 bucks worth of plates for the for the lab or it's going to be distributed so you can actually pay the participants in the study so that you can actually recruit people. Because like, you're asking them to come to your lab for eight weeks, three days a week, mm-hmm. uh, plus pre and post testing. So like, it's nice if you can say, oh, hey, can we get like a $1,000 of funding so that we can pay all of our subjects pennies on the dollar for their time? You know, because I mean, it's you, you, a lot of times with these studies, you're paying subjects like 40 bucks. And they're coming to the, the lab for like, Twelve total hours or something, like and that that's for a non training study for a training study they're coming all the time.
1: What I will say though is, I remember being in college. I would have done a lot of shit for forty bucks <laughs>
0: no, I mean it's <laughs> yeah that, that, the market sets the price, and that's the price these days, it seems, but um in any case, you know some of the studies that are reporting null findings when it comes to... uh, I don't know how many of them looked at perform, but there were some with performance, but definitely some with body composition as well. You know, you look at what are the potential conflicts there. I know for for a couple of the papers reporting null findings, you know, the lead author had filed patents related to betaine supplementation. I mean, that's a big... con. Like, if you're filing a patent, like you know how much money and time goes into filing a patent? Like that's not, from what I understand, not a fun, easy, or inexpensive process. Mm -hmm. So if you're filing patents related to Betaine, you're hoping it works. Yeah. Um, And again, that, that doesn't mean you can't study it because we do have instances like this where there are people transparent on the up and up doing honest work who say, it'd be really great for me if Betaine worked, but it didn't, you know? Um, there are also a number of papers reporting null findings where some of the authors on the author list of the paper are full-time employees of the company that sells the betaine and provided it for the study. Mm -hmm. And so like the thing that kills me is that, you know, people are worried about this conflict of interest because some professor at a university got three bottles of betaine and, you know, $600. It's like, dude, one of these authors, if this betaine company folds... They got to move like they got to put their kids in a different school and sell their house <laughs> and like that's kind of a big deal. You know, so like if there's authors on the paper who have that much of their life connected to betaine, mm-hmm. um, to me, that's a bigger conflict of interest than who provided the betaine. Correct. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. So so yeah. Th- there, it's not to say that that graphic is completely without merit, because like I said, if you were to say, well, I'm not going to be convinced about Betaine until I see a study that, is, that has really positive findings and is not funded by a company with conflicts of interest, um, it, it would be very fair to say it's hard to find a really positive finding that was privately funded or, or, or you know, completely absent of conflicts of interest. So that, that's a fair point you could make. Okay. So, so I don't want to like pile on and say that there's, uh, that there's no merit to to that line of conversation, but there are people kind of sharing an image indicating that the, the relationship's a little bit more insidious and a little bit more, uh, perfect than it, than it really is. Right. yeah. Yeah.
1: Like there, there are several null findings where conflicts of interest were present, including very large conflicts of interest.
0: Definitely. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so (laughs) another thing that, that I found kind of funny is in a discussion about that, I saw somebody bringing up HMB.
1: Oh, God. Because
0: they're like, oh, I see a graphic here that's leading me to believe there's conflicts of interest. I'm going to draw a parallel to the HMB research. And it's like, dude, the reason people were upset, the reason the HMB stuff got controversial wasn't because the study was funded by somebody. It was because the results were out of this world. You know what I mean? Like, dude, so if you're talking about, like, if you look at the magnitude of these positive findings in the betaine studies, they're not that big. I mean, so it's a complete apples and oranges comparison there. So that that comparison to me is completely unjustifiable, completely unwarranted. (laughs) Like, come on, HMB, like, yeah. I mean, you wrote an article about some of the HMB research for Stronger by Science where it was like, dude, look at the results- look at what we would expect from steroids like these findings are are just astronomically out of left field
1: yeah it was absolutely ridiculous
0: yeah so so okay that's that part um getting back on on track here so th- with the body composition stuff Uh, we've got some studies in the six to eight week timeframe with a good resistance training stimulus on top of it that give us enough evidence to feel intrigued, but not enough to say, oh yeah, this is a sure thing, safe bet. If you're not on betaine, you're an idiot. Like we're not even close to that yet, but there's enough to at least justify it. Uh, when it comes to performance, um, there's kind of some mixed inconsistent findings, um, there have been a few instances where performance improvements have been noted, uh, but there have been several instances where they've looked at a number of different performance outcomes and found nothing significant to report in terms of, of of benefits. One of the very notable things about that body of literature, if you want to interpret it very charitably, is most of the studies are one or two weeks long. Uh, that's short. And I think with, with b I'm more interested in some of the long-term effects. And when it comes to a theoretical performance advantage from betaine, I'm interested in seeing if it really does enhance hypertrophy over time, does it help with our long-term strength increases? Looking at the theoretical mechanisms by which betaine could possibly affect performance, I'm not that optimistic about a super short-term benefit. I'm more interested in performance benefits that might be secondary to the hypertrophy benefits. And so, I think if you, like I said, if you want, if you want to have a very uncharitable assessment of the literature, you'd say ah, it seems like a lot of times it doesn't work, and you can just discard it. But I think a more charitable approach would be, you know, these one to two week time frames, and they all pretty much use the same dose. By the way, they're pretty much all looking at one or two weeks of supplementation with 2.5 grams a day.
1: So if we're looking at which I'll note is is noteworthy uh, because again humans are not pigs, Um, but the the livestock literature tends to use dosages that are approximately twice what like when scaling for body mass are approximately double what's used in humans. So you know, it it very well could be like a dose dependency thing where like the two and a half grams per day used in the research may do a little something for you, but it doesn't provide super reliable effects. Whereas maybe like five or six grams per day would. Um, but that just hasn't been tested in humans yet.
0: Yeah. And so I think, uh, I think it would be interesting to see some more betaine literature using, longer interventions, which I mean, that's easy to say for me, because I don't have to run it or fund <laughs> it. Uh, but longer interventions, I think are more likely to reveal if there is a benefit to be revealed. I think longer interventions closer to the 16, 20, 24 week timeframe are probably more likely to reveal some of those stri- theoretical strength benefits. Um, and, and like I said, when you only have a single dose being observed most of the time, And most of the studies are one to two weeks long. I I just can't help but wonder, like, if we decided to, you know, let's say our understanding of creatine was limited when we first started looking at the applied effects, and we didn't understand the the process of loading. If we just ran a handful of studies and said, okay, we're going to give five grams a day for two weeks and see if it affects strength, most of those studies probably wouldn't find much. You know what I mean? I mean, maybe you're increasing muscle creatine enough with that dosing strategy over two weeks, maybe. But uh, but I mean, we wouldn't really fully appreciate creatine's effects if we didn't know, oh, it actually takes a loading phase and we need to make sure we reach the saturation level and we need to give it enough time to actually make that saturation occur. You know, so I mean, or even just imagine protein
1: supplementation like, hey, we're going to give people one scoop of protein powder per day for a week or two lo and behold, doesn't do shit. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah.
0: And and so I, I just want to be very transparent. You know, someone listening to this might say, well, Eric, you seem to be very charitable w- with your w- with how you're interpreting the betaine literature. And I think that's very fair. Like w- what I'm interested in is we see a lot of supplements come along and most of them just right out of the gate. You look at the premise and you're like, it just doesn't make sense. Like th- there are no yeah. mechanisms here that I find to be compelling there's no animal, there's not a decent amount of animal research that would give me a a reason to have a lot of hope here. So a lot of these supplements, you know, right, right off the bat, you're like, I just don't see a lot of potential here. With betaine, I think it's one of those interesting scenarios where you can see the potential. Um, You don't know if it'll pan out yet, but what, what I find really interesting, this kind of uh, connects to the bigger picture thing, which is kind of what do we do with a body of literature that's just developing and and kind of what is our starting point when we're evaluating whether or not a supplement or any, any training uh, or nutrition intervention, what's our starting point for determining whether or not something is worth it. And I think it's really interesting. A lot of people seem to have a perspective where they are going to assume that, that a potent, let's, let's just say supplement to keep it as a very relevant example. Some random supplement comes along and they are going to assume the position, I absolutely will not in- entertain the idea that this could work until I am absolutely conclusively proven otherwise. You know, so uh, that that's an okay stance to have. And if you look at kind of the theoretical underpinnings of uh, null hypothesis testing, you could argue maybe that's where you're supposed to start, right? I mean, that, that's the whole point with with any statistical test with, with the, the kind of frequentist uh, approach is... I'm going to assume the null hypothesis, which is, you know, this thing ain't going to work, there's no effect. And only when there's enough evidence to reject that, w- will I start to say, okay, maybe there's something there. And so I think a lot of people view supplementation that way. And that's a totally fine way to do it. Um, but th- that's not the only way to do it. And that's not necessarily always the best way to do it. So just to give an example, if you were to look at uh, the the creatine literature, for example. Um, athletes were using it in the 80s. It didn't really start to break into the research literature until the early 90s. And if you were going to apply that standard of, you know, only once I'm very conclusively proven from a decent body of literature and, a, you know, theoretically a meta-analysis kind of summarizing it, only then will I say, okay, it's worth a shot. That's okay, but you probably spent close to 15 years watching all your friends benefit from creatine before you gave it a shot. Mm-hmm. You know, it probably wouldn't have been until about 2001 or 2003 that you would have said, okay, there's something to this creatine thing. I think I, think I might give it a shot. And that's okay. Like I- I- if your biggest interest is in never swinging and missing, that's a completely fine stance to have. And you're never going to look back and say, man, 15 years totally wasted because cool. I didn't have a supplement. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and it, it gets more extreme than creatine as well. One of the things we we talked about um, after the betaine article went up and as we were outlining this episode is like, you know, when we think supplements, we think stuff like protein, creatine, caffeine, etc. But people kind of forget how the, the steroid literature went. Um, so that's like a pretty extreme example of of a lot of the stuff we've been talking about actually so like was the dosing appropriate yada 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 um and and like you know did you wait long enough to see the literature develop so if you go and i think this is one of the things people don't think about mostly because you know at this point everyone knows that steroids work and most of the like steroid trials that people will cite will be from the 90s or later um But if you go back and look at the early research on anabolic steroids that started in like the 70s and and into the 80s, the research consensus for a hot minute was that steroids didn't really do anything. And the reason for that is um, like (laughs) a typical study would be like, hey, we're going to give people 10 milligrams of D-ball once a week and see if that does anything and like lo and behold doesn't really do anything or at least like doesn't reliably have a particularly large effect and so like you can you can go and read um like narrative reviews from researchers in the late 80s early 90s that say look these athletes like there might be some risks from using steroids and uh around that time like they were starting to get banned in sports like they're risking bands they're risking their careers uh One, we don't even know that steroids should be banned in sports because we don't really think they do anything. But two, these athletes seem to be behaving very irrationally and taking on a lot of risk without meaningful benefit. And then uh, Basin comes out in 96 and is like, you motherfuckers are giving people 10 milligrams of D-ball once a week. I'm going to start giving people 600 milligrams of test every week. Let's see if that does something, and lo and behold, it fucking does something. Um, <laughs> and then, like, researchers were like, "Oh shit, these steroids that athletes have been doing, maybe they knew what they were talking about." Um, but yeah, that's that's a body of literature where you could have watched it develop for twenty years, like over twenty years, and been like, "Well, does it do something? Maybe, but we're not sure." Uh, but yeah, it was. I I think that's not quite as good of an example as creatine because like people were using appropriate doses of creatine both kind of in the real world and in the research and it just took a while for the body of literature to develop but yeah with with steroid literature like just the studies themselves were completely inadequate for over two decades and it led people to be skeptical about whether anabolic steroids actually had a positive effect Um, and you know I'm not recommending everyone go out there and do gear, but until uh, <laughs> until a lot later than I think a lot of people realize, steroids were completely allowed in sports. And boy, would you have been an idiot as like an Olympic coach in the 70s when everyone was doing steroids and they were completely allowed to say, well, the research that's out there isn't all that positive. Uh, so my athletes are just going to, you know train hard and eat clean like <laughs> yeah. that uh that probably would have cost your athletes quite a few medals
0: <laughs> probably so and, and just to be super clear i know we're using some metaphors here uh is not steroids oh yeah, yeah. And, i'm and n- be- not
1: not trying to make that implication yeah. at all
0: i i just i want to be very clear uh because some people took some extreme liberties with misinterpreting the betaine article anyway <laughs> Uh, betaine, not only is it not steroids, betaine is not the next creatine. I already feel comfortable enough to say that. Um, the question is, is it going to be once the body of literature develops, the way I put it in the article is, can it be one of those second tier supplements? You know, could it be something that we view like, like a beta alanine or a citrulline malate? Um, you know, something on that tier of supplements where you're like, well, it, it ain't creatine, but maybe it does have a reliable ergogenic benefit if it's dosed for the right, uh, you know, if it's dosed correctly and taken for a long enough time to actually promote hypertrophy, you know. So that's that's kind of where I see it in terms of its potential upside. But, you know, kind of the the better, or, or I guess the overarching point that you're hinting at there is when do we call it, you know, as a body of literature is developing, when do we officially say, that's it. This is a waste. Just stop studying it. It's a waste of time, right? Can you imagine if if we did those those first five or ten years of steroid research and said, "Dude, we already have the studies. It doesn't do anything. Just give up on it." You know, I, that's kind of the sense I got from some of the feedback on the B ten article. Was like, "Oh my God, B again? Let it go, man." There's like six studies saying it didn't work, and I'm like, "Dude, if you applied that logic to the literature, if if we look at caffeine." and its effects on maximal strength. The first several studies coming out were pretty unimpressive. But as the body of literature developed, we started to say, oh, okay, it looks like we've got an effect size here that's somewhere between trivial and small, right? So somewhere in that 0.15, 0.2 range. But I think a lot of people now are warming up to the idea that caffeine uh, can have a positive impact on maximal strength. And there are some meta-analyses now that would indicate that. you know, another interesting uh, story is kind of, kind of the inverse of that. If we look at how the citrulline malate literature developed, the first few studies came out, and we're talking about effect sizes that are up in the 0.3 to 0.5 range. And we're like, man, the citrulline malate, especially for something like reps to fatigue, is like, it's pretty up there in terms of effect size. And so for the first few years of that body of literature, it was, you know, kind of bigger effect sizes. And then there were a series of studies came, that came out that kind of brought us back down to earth a little bit. And there were a few studies in a row that had some non-significant findings which, with much smaller effect sizes. And so one of the ways I like to view a developing body of literature is I like to view it like a funnel plot. You know what I mean? So a funnel plot in a meta-analysis, we've got the, the kind of average effect size we would expect. But as studies kind of get smaller or have more variability, we expect them to deviate from that average. So if a, a supplement's true effect size is 0.2, we expect we're going to see some small studies that get like a, a negative 0.2 and maybe a 0.6 for the effect size. We expect some degree of spread when it comes to these small, you know, quickly put together trials. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm looking at a body of literature develop, you know, we, we look at something like, uh, like caffeine. And we see that there's these small effect sizes, but what we didn't know at the time was they're clustering around 0.2 or something like that. So there is an effect here. It's just a bunch of small effect sizes that when they when they get pooled together, they're going to show us that there is a trivial to small effect here. Uh, but we, we can't see what they're clustering around until we let that body of literature develop.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: When you look at citrulline malate, what happened was the right side of the funnel plot filled in first, chronologically. So we saw all these kind of larger than average effects in hindsight. At the time, we didn't know they were larger than average. We just thought those were the average. But then we started to see... At the
1: time, they were the average.
0: Well, correct. yeah. Yeah. And then we start to see some of the other studies fill in the left side of that funnel plot, some of the a little bit below average results. And they're clustering around a number that's greater than zero uh, but, but we initially kind of overestimated the effect size of citrulline malate, I think. Uh, I still think it's useful. Don't get me wrong. But but for a while there, we were overestimating its effect size. And so I, I think what's interesting about anytime you're looking at a developing body of supplement literature, if your biggest concern is that you never, ever want to give it a shot and miss and say, wow, I wasted 20 bucks on that supplement of course, you can wait it out and you're never going to regret that in a big way. You're never going to be like, ah, damn, that supplement just changed everybody's lives except for mine because I missed out. Supplements don't have that big of an effect. But the way I view supplement literature is as it's developing, I'm waiting to see how that funnel plot's going to fill in. And if it's clustering around zero or we're seeing a bunch of super small or even negative effect sizes exclusively, then I'm like, okay, well, I don't see any reason to to really entertain that idea yet. That doesn't mean they should just shut down the body of research necessarily, but I want to let that develop and, and see what happens. And mm-hmm. for me, the way I'm looking at a supplement is not I need you to absolutely conclusively prove to me that this is going to change my life, but rather, if there's no risk of side effects, uh, you know or you know if, if we already know that it's safe, well tolerated, no side effects and it can't hurt my performance, and we're starting to see a couple a couple positive findings trickling out, and some that are not negative, but they're kind of closer to zero, maybe I will entertain the idea. Uh, you know, it's kind of, a, like I said, testing the waters, treating it kind of like a, like an experiment. I'll give it a shot mm-hmm. and see if I like it. And if not, you know, then I had, you know, no side effects. It didn't hurt my performance. It just didn't help. And I wasted 20 bucks. Yeah. So, you know, I, I would say, honestly, you should never buy a supplement with money that you're not comfortable wasting. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about small effect sizes here, right? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that, that's kind of my viewpoint is there's two different schools of thought when it comes to these developing bodies of, of, uh, of literature with a supplement. And I think it's important to kind of think about where you are in terms of those schools of thought. So if someone were to tell me, Eric, the betaine evidence to me is not compelling because I haven't been conclusively proven that this is gonna gonna benefit me for sure. I would totally agree with that. I would say th- there's absolutely not enough proof to tell you for sure that that betaine is you know a definite thing. It's it's a safe bet. Take it. You're gonna improve your performance or you're gonna have you know notable hypertrophy. But uh, but I also on the flip side of that, I don't think there's nearly enough to say betaine absolute waste i'm sure of it we shouldn't even do research because there's no way that could possibly be beneficial if you take the approach that or if you have the viewpoint that that's where the research is i don't see where you're getting that from i i think right now it's inconclusive there's some glimmers of hope and really what it comes down to is your appetite for experimentation and your appetite for taking that risk and when it comes to something like betaine if we had no idea what the what the health and safety profile was then I'd probably say, leave it. But, but for something like betaine, it seems to be very safe, very well tolerated. Uh, there's some evidence that if you're taking it with resistance, resistance training, it might have some positive effects. The effects on body composition are more promising than the effects on performance. But again, that's within the context of mostly pretty short trials. So just, I, I thought that was a, a useful, uh, conversation to have because I think a lot of people miss those historical contexts of the things that we know work in hindsight. What did it look like to watch that body of literature actually develop in real time? Mm-hmm. And so, when it comes to BTA, we have the opportunity to watch that develop in real time. And the question is, what do we? How do we continue to update our assessment as it develops? Mm-hmm. You know. And so, so th- that's kind of the the background for how I frame the conclusions in the BTA article. And, and just to make a really concise summary statement. grams a day seems to be safe and well-tolerated. There's no evidence that it would hurt performance. The performance data is not particularly impressive. There are some bright spots or some little glimmers of hope when it comes to body composition, both with fat loss and muscle gain. And so for those reasons, you know, if you are comfortable testing the waters, making it into a little bit of an experiment and saying, maybe I'll give betaine a shot. I think it's at least justifiable to say that that's an experiment worth undertaking.
1: I agree. I I think it's, uh, (laughs) I think it's also worth just kind of considering this from like a philosophy of science perspective, because you, you mentioned kind of assumptions baked into null hypothesis, significance testing and how, you know, you're, you're, you're supposed to assume that something doesn't do anything. And then you're, you're waiting for fairly convincing evidence that it might do something. I think it's worth considering kind of where that idea came from. Um, and also where the field of exercise science gets a lot of its, um, both like research and statistical conventions from. So, a lot of our research conventions come from like biomedical and pharmaceutical pharmaceutical research. Um, like, I mean, a, a supplement study is kind of just like a shitty clinical trial for a drug. Uh, and that's, that's where a lot of those conventions came from. And then a lot of the statistical conventions used across a lot of the sciences um, came from people who primarily operated in psychology and um, and I think those two things are worth keeping in mind for a couple reasons. One is that as far as weighting the risks of a false positive versus a false negative goes, a lot of that comes from biomedical research. And the thing with that is like the the cost of a false positive is pretty enormous when it comes to pharmaceutical and biomedical research. Um one because like if you say a drug is good and effective when it turns out to not be, um, you know, you very well could be one risking a lot of people's health and lives because there very well could be another drug out there that's more effective that you're now giving a less effective drug to because of a false positive. Um, and also like the the acute risks can be larger as well because most most pharmaceuticals have, Um, you know, they have risks and side effects that are greater than the risk of, say, creatine. Um, So there's, and another thing as well is like, if there's quite a few false positives, or like, if there's several false positives for a particular treatment approach or a particular drug, and people who are, you know, making million-dollar grants start seeing this, and they're like, oh shit, this seems promising, let's pump millions of dollars into studying this thing to develop this treatment that then you know it's kind of a zero-sum game those are millions of dollars that aren't going towards looking for other new drugs or treatments or continuing to study something else that seems promising Um, and so that could set a field back because you're you're chasing a rabbit hole with finite research funds Um, and so there's huge, huge costs for false positives in kind of the fields that exercise science grew out of. And so there's reasonably high criteria for saying like, okay, this is promising enough to continue moving forward. Whereas I would say the the risks of false positives versus false negatives or like the costs of false positives versus false negatives are, are different when it comes to exercise science generally and like supplement studies as well. Cause like, dude, if you're studying, if you're studying a new periodization idea, um, and like maybe this idea is like slightly better than another one. Um, but maybe it's not quite statistically significant. Maybe it's a p-value of 0.07. Like, dude, if you go with option B over option A, who gives a shit, you know? Like, yeah. like the the actual risks to the athlete probably aren't all that different. And, like, the cost of being wrong is just like, oh, well, could have put 15 pounds on my squat this training cycle, and instead I put 10. You know, like, yeah. it's, it's just not that big of a deal. And the same thing with supplement research. Like, there aren't that many supplements that people are studying that don't seem to be pretty safe and so like ultimately if you're maybe a little bit too excited about a particular supplement that on down the line it turns out to not be very effective like yeah you're out some money and that's not great but it's you know it's not the same thing as like (laughs) um like prescribing thalidomide to a bunch of pregnant women and then having mass birth defects you know
0: Right. And, you know, just to be clear, like, I I don't want to trivialize how much it stings when, when, when some, you know, you buy into the good marketing from the supplement company, you buy a few tubs of it, and then you look back in hindsight and you're like, damn it, they got me. You know, I get it. And I was a full time student from 2009 to 2019. So I know about tight budgets. Believe me, it was a 10 year period where, like, dude, I just didn't supplement much at all. Cause I was like, dude, I'm not going to steal from my grocery fund to, <laughs> to buy some special powder. So like, just to kind of put this in practical terms, th- these are real things. Like I, I have had clients come up to me and ask me, Eric, as someone interested in strength and hypertrophy, do you think I should take creatine? And I would say, sounds like a damn good idea to me. And they come up to me and say, Eric, do you think I should take branch chain amino acids to support my hypertrophy goals? on a high protein diet. And I'd say, I don't think that's going to be beneficial. Someone very much in real life came up to me a a month or two ago and said, should I take betaine? I'd say, well, it could help. If you don't take it, we're not going to miss anything. But if you're interested and you're enthusiastic about it, uh, it appears to be safe. There's some evidence that it might help. It's really up to you, Mm -hmm. you know? So, uh, that's where I'm at with it. I, and, and that's kind of where the article settles. And so I was very surprised. Some people were absolutely flabbergasted by what they perceived as a unequivocal endorsement for betaine from my article. I'm like, I, it just seems, I'm just not ready to completely throw it away yet. Mm-hmm. That, that's pretty much where I'm at. I'm throwing branched chain amino acids away. They're dead, they're dead to me. They're out the door. Creatine, it's great. Betaine, it's in the middle. And, and we have to be able to be kind of comfortable with that. You know? uh, for now until we learn more. But, uh, but yeah, so, uh, that is the rundown of the article.
1: Sounds good. Um, so we, we have actually had two more recent articles published on the site as well. Um, they didn't, (laughs) they didn't court the same degree of discussion or controversy. Um, but just want to make a little plug here. So, you know, they are out there if you primarily listen to the podcast, but don't check the site that often. Um, so we, uh, we recently republished a video that, that initially appeared in mass from Mike Zordos about, uh, returning to training after a layoff. Uh, that includes a spreadsheet that, that kind of lays out how a, how an example program might look for easing back into training. Uh, so we we published that a couple weeks ago, free resource on the site if you would like to check it out. Um, and we also recently published uh, an article from our in-house PT, Jason Yer, um, and it covers kind of the risks that you might want to be aware of uh, when it comes to maybe getting back into training too hard too fast after a layoff. Um, I'm... <laughs> I'm concerned that physical therapists might uh, be about to have a huge spike in business as gyms start opening back up, um, you know, and, and people are very detrained and they start trying to train exactly like they were training before. So so that article from Jason um, covers some of the, the risks associated with that and just things to be aware of, um, reiterates a lot of the points from Mike's video, uh, but that is another good article to check out and i'll just note if uh if you've already got back into the gym and uh hit things a little too hard wound up with some sort of injury uh or that uh that occurs to you within the next couple of weeks or months uh Jason on staff he's great if you want to talk to a physical therapist about some sort of injury pain or limitation um that's not just going to tell you like oh your back's sore guess you should never squat again Uh, Jason would be a good person to talk to he is a lifter we're buddies with him like he understands how strength athletes and people obsessed with iron feel about all of this stuff so you know he'll he'll be able to to give you advice and guide you through the the rehab and return to training process after pains injuries limitations better than maybe a physical therapist who isn't as well associated with iron sports.
0: And that's huge. I mean, I'm probably preaching to the choir here, but it is crazy how important it is to find a solid physical therapist who understands how much lifting means to you and kind of has a background related to lifting. Mm -hmm. A lot of absolutely incredible physical therapists out there. But I remember one time I had a lifting-related injury and I went in and I said, hey, um, so I've been treating my body like a rental For like 15 years, 10 years, 15 years, and my hip hurts because I lift a lot and I'm kind of an idiot. And they explored every possible reason for that pain except anything hip related. (laughs) Uh, I was like, yeah, but it's like I'm just telling you guys. Like I I squat low bar ass to grass. No one else in the world does. It's stupid. I'm just. It's got torque on top of torque on this hip, and I I think the hip's in bad shape. And they're like, well. It could be anything else. <laughs> so like, I just didn't get help with it, you know? So it, it really is nice when you can go to someone and say, hey, I know that you know lifting, you know how much this means to me. Let's be pragmatic about finding a solution, you know? Okay. You want to move on to uh, research roundup?
1: I think we should.
0: Okay, cool. So research roundup, this is a segment where we give some not super in-depth discussion uh, of recent research, but we kind of give you the highlights of papers that have come out recently. Um, now, if you want more of this content, like I said, we've got, uh, we've got our summer break coming up. So if you want to continue getting some good research roundup content during our podcast break, you can always uh, go to strongerbyscience.com, get on the email list, and we email out uh, additional research roundup content in the written form. So it'll come straight to your email inbox. Uh, So, one of the studies I saw recently was about vitamin C and recovery. Uh, This was a meta-analysis. So, vitamin C, it's a well-known antioxidant. We've talked about antioxidants on the show quite a bit in the past. Um, Very common thought here is that high-dose vitamin C supplementation will reduce oxidative stress and inflammation caused by training, and theoretically, this would improve recovery and performance. And so the idea is if you're training like crazy and you're causing all this oxidative stress and inflammation, if you could take this vitamin C, it would attenuate some of that, mitigate some of that so you could get back into the gym earlier and train harder because of those theoretical recovery benefits. So recent meta-analysis put this theory to the test. They looked at the effect of vitamin C supplementation on lipid peroxidation, and that's uh, indicative of oxidative stress. They also looked at interleukin-6 or IL-6, which is a marker of inflammation. They looked at creatine kinase. They looked at C-reactive protein cortisol. They also looked at soreness and strength recovery after uh, some pretty intense exercise bouts. So what they found here, cutting right to the results, um, there was a small reduction in lipid peroxidation and IL-6 in response to vitamin C supplementation. And again, this is a meta-analysis, so they looked at several studies that that all looked at those particular outcomes. What's interesting, though, so so starting out, you think, okay, well, that supports the theory, right? We're going to reduce oxidative stress and inflammation. That's going to improve all these different aspects of recovery. What's really interesting is that the other outcomes were not significantly impacted uh, in a meaningful way. And so what we saw there is that there were these mo- uh, these modest reductions in markers of oxidative stress and inflammation. However, that didn't actually translate over into the things we really care about as a lifter, right? So if you ask them, are you more sore or less sore? Soreness was not impacted in a meaningful way. Same thing when it comes to the actual recovery of strength performance after those, uh, those intense exercise sessions. So, you know, this is something that came up in the antioxidant article that I wrote a few months ago for Stronger by Science. And, you know, we looked a little bit at some of the research, you know, there is some research indicating that really high dose vitamin C could theoretically uh, blunt hypertrophy to a small degree. That evidence is inconsistent and the effect doesn't seem to be huge. So a lot of people are out there worried about if I have too much vitamin C in my diet, is it going to hurt my gains? The answer is probably not. And if it does have an effect, it's going to be pretty small. But but the research there is pretty mixed. Um, but one of the things I brought up in the article is a, a good question would be, why are you Why are you doing this high high dose vitamin C supplementation in the first place? Because um, what we see, looking at the literature and this meta analysis, kind of supports this contention: is that while it might not necessarily kill your gains, there just doesn't seem to be much of a good reason to do it. This perceived benefit, this idea that it's going to you know completely change your your ability to adapt to training and get you back in the gym quicker and stronger it just doesn't seem to pan out in the studies that actually directly assess that question. So I'm still not convinced that you need to worry that if your vitamin C increases above a certain threshold from food sources, that that's going to have any bearing on your ability to grow in response to training. However, I just don't see a, a really compelling reason for a healthy individual to be using this high-dose vitamin C as a recovery aid. If you're interested in using some kind of... Uh, some kind of antioxidant based supplement for recovery. There's much better evidence for things like tart cherry juice. Um, you know, there are some kind of polyphenol based like, um, uh, pomegranate blends and watermelon juice blends that, that have a bunch of other active phytonutrients in them that seem to have better effects on actual recovery.
1: And and even like turmeric or curcumins, curcuminoids.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of, you know, uh, a lot more of these kind of phytonutrient-packed uh, supplement blends that are based on, like I said, you know, it, turmeric, curcumin, uh, pomegranate, watermelon, tart cherry, and they just seem to perform better uh, in, in terms of the actual tangible recovery parameters we care about. Soreness and are you back to full strength quicker? So if you want to go that direction and you're interested in some kind of antioxidant supplementation, uh, that might relate to enhanced blood flow, enhanced recovery, something like that. I would encourage you to check out that Stronger by Science article, strongerbyscience.com slash antioxidants. I go into some of the details. And one of the most important things, this is something that came up in the betaine article as well. Whenever possible, I try to recommend dietary swaps that would achieve the same effect rather than uh, rather than you know buying a new supplement and going out of your way and spending a bunch of money. So, uh, when it comes to betaine, I think there are ways to get some more betaine into your diet without necessarily buying a supplement. It takes a little bit of effort. Um, yeah, there, there's some specific foods that are pretty high in betaine, but the same thing goes with these different antioxidant based uh, approaches to recovery. Uh, you know, there are some foods that, that just deliver a ton of antioxidants with a variety of other phytonutrients just naturally ple- uh, present in the food. And so if you're interested in seeing what some of those foods are, you can go to strongerbyscience.com slash antioxidants and check those out. Um, another study that came out recently that I wanted to briefly highlight, another meta analysis. I'm kind of, on, I'm, I'm, it's pretty transparent. I'm on a meta analysis kick lately. I just really like them. I, I find them interesting. I, I like to uh, get into the methods a little bit with them. But uh, in any case, there's a recent meta analysis on bicarbonate, sodium bicarbonate, Um and so th- this has been a popular supplement for for decades now. The idea is that, you know, you, you supplement with bicarbonate. The bicarbonate buffer sy- buffering system plays an important role uh, in regulating blood pH and dealing with the buildup of all those hydrogen ions that accumulate during really intense exercise. So especially something like sprint work, uh, high repetition um, resistance training, those things that cause a big buildup of hydrogen ions, that's where we would expect sodium bicarbonate to, uh, to really shine. So this meta-analysis looked at 13 studies uh, that, that included some kind of muscular endurance outcome. They also looked at strength outcomes as well, and they found 11 studies looking at that. Um, and they, they did some interesting subgroup analyses too that I'll talk about, but uh, the overall effect here. So it did have a positive effect. Sodium bicarbonate supplementation did have a positive effect on muscular endurance. The effect size was 037 um, they looked at small muscle groups versus large muscle groups, and it didn't really seem to be much of a difference. They, they weren't completely identical, but it was pretty similar, maybe slightly in favor of large muscle groups, but from a statistical perspective, uh, they look quite similar. Um, sodium bicarbonate did not have a meaningful effect or a statistically significant effect on muscular strength. Uh, and that didn't matter whether, uh, whether muscular strength was measured in the rested state or in the fatigue state. I think intuitively they were probably expecting resting. It won't do much, but maybe in the fatigue state, there's something there Mm -hmm. that that would be my assumption, but, uh, it it just didn't pan out that way for strength. Uh, the the numbers just weren't very impressive. So, um, nothing really earth shattering here. Nothing super surprising. I mean, usually that's the way it goes with meta-analyses, uh, when a meta-analysis, when the results absolutely blindside you, it's usually not a good sign. <laughs> uh, it, usually, <laughs> it usually means that you either did not know that literature the way you thought you did, or potentially there was a mistake made in the analysis. Uh, I know it seems like a far-fetched idea, but it happens sometimes, Greg. Greg. Uh, but, but this was a very well done meta-analysis and very much, you know, the results were quite intuitive. I I think for a long time, people have known sodium bicarbonate. It's kind of what I consider one of those second tier supplements, right? So it's not creatine in terms of the magnitude of effect or the reliability or the consistency of the effect has a slightly more narrow subset of exercise tasks that it's likely to, to benefit. You know, one of the magic things about creatine that that's incredible is the number of different outcomes it positively affects. Um so sodium bicarbonate is much more limited as a supplement um, but if you're doing a lot of really intense work, especially like sprint work, middle distance work, or very high repetition lifting, there is uh evidence suggesting that sodium bicarbonate could be uh in a, an effective supplementation strategy Now, one thing I will note um if you're thinking about experimenting with sodium bicarbonate supplementation um make sure that it actually makes sense for the type of training that you do. Um, You know, if you're just doing a bunch of low repetition work with plenty of rest between sets, it's probably, probably not the right supplement for you, but you also want to keep a close eye on your dosing strategy. So um, there was a recent paper that looked at a pretty creative dosing strategy for sodium bicarbonate. Usually studies will give around a 300 milligram per kilogram dose acutely. That's kind of the, the typical supplementation strategy. Problem is, if you go a little bit too low, um, it's probably not going to work. And if you go a little bit too high, you might uh, have some very unpleasant GI side effects, some gastrointestinal discomfort. And that's putting it lightly. Um, but it's a family show. We don't want to get graphic. Um, but what they did in this this recent study is pretty interesting. Instead of doing 300 milligrams per kilogram in a single dose, they did 600 milligrams per kilogram, but they spread that over like an almost 20-hour period with kind of repeated dosing along the way, what they found was they were able to achieve the blood levels of bicarbonate that they were hoping for, but without having that big influx that's likely to potentially cause some GI discomfort. So um, I'll link that in, in the show notes. And if you're interested in looking at that uh, supplementation dosing protocol, uh, you can check that out and see if it might be the strategy for you. Now, Greg, you've got something here and all it says as a title is hot content. I'm I'm very excited to see what that might be.
1: Yeah, uh I, I'm just gonna add something really quick to the sodium bicarbonate stuff. Sure. Um So the the mechanism by which sodium bicarbonate works um is it uh increases blood pH to some degree. So then as you produce hydrogen ions during exercise, they can uh, they can diffuse out of the muscle a little bit more efficiently, so you get a, a slower drop in muscle pH, which helps preserve performance a little bit. Um, there was a recent paper that came out maybe like two months ago or so, looking at the effects of hyperventilating on uh, on exercise performance. Um, I reviewed that study in Mass. But it's interesting. So hyperventilating is interesting because in theory, it's just a better version of bicarbonate supplementation. Um, So when you hyperventilate, you're blowing off more carbon dioxide that induces a state called respiratory alkalosis. And respiratory alkalosis can increase pH slightly in both your blood and your muscle tissue. And so it basically is Is kind of like a double dose of what you'd be getting with bicarbonate supplementation. So you can, you can buffer hydrogen ions within the muscles a little bit better. And then you can also buffer hydrogen ions or like you, you can get a greater diffusion of hydrogen ions into the blood once kind of pH of the muscle starts dropping. So it, it has a similar effect, but it's kind of more universal. So it's not just about, uh, the difference in pH across that membrane. Um, And so there's only a handful of studies looking at it, and it seems to be a somewhat promising strategy. Um, So the study I reviewed in mass had had very positive results, and a couple prior, and that used resistance exercises, like what they were testing the effects on. The prior studies looked at, uh, I believe, cycling, if memory serves, and they had kind of more mixed results. The drawback of hyperventilating as like a means of improving strength um like strength endurance is that it it seems like you kind of have to find a goldilocks zone where if you hyperventilate too much you get lightheaded uh perform worse and if you maybe don't hyperventilate enough it's not really going to do much of anything but it it does seem that if you can kind of find that goldilocks zone of the appropriate intensity of hyperventilation and the appropriate duration. Um, it actually seems to be pretty effective. So I'm not necessarily recommending you do that. Um, but it might be something worth playing around with for exercises where you're not at that much risk if you black out. Um, so, you know, maybe give it a shot with like barbell rows or curls or, Eh, probably wouldn't actually matter for curls, but I don't know, like rows, maybe like RDLs, something like that. Um, so one of the things Eric didn't mention about bicarbonate supplementation, um, and is something that I think maybe you should keep in mind if you give it a shot, is like, yes, the thing people are most concerned about and probably not aware of as much as they should be is those GI symptoms Eric mentioned, They are very real and they are very scary. Uh, Like, you know, it's it's not going to kill you or anything, but like while you're going through it, you'll wish you were dead. Uh, (laughs) I have never been in more GI discomfort than I was the first time I tried kind of the standard dosing strategy of 300 milligrams per kilogram of, of baking soda. And my God, by the time it worked its way to the other end of my GI tract, the bathroom was a goddamn war zone. Like it was, it was a problem. Um, so that's something that more people need to be aware of. But what Eric didn't mention is that sodium bicarbonate. I mean, like, dude, if you've, if you, if you grew up with parents of my parents' generation, uh, that maybe like had you brush your teeth with baking soda, you know how bad baking soda tastes. Um, if you haven't and you have some baking soda in your pantry, just, like, take a spoonful of baking soda. It doesn't taste particularly good. It's not... It's not an aggressively horrendous taste. So, like, the first time you taste it, you might be like, ah, whatever, this is generally unpleasant, but I could supplement with it. But the amount of sodium bicarbonate you need to get down to have ergogenic effects is, is pretty high. So you know, compare it to caffeine, where they recommend three to six milligrams per kilogram with sodium bicarbonate, it's 300 milligrams per kilogram or 600 milligrams per kilogram spread out over 19 and a half hours. So like, if you're, if you're say 100 kilos, 220 pounds, if you go that 600 milligram route spread out over 19 and a half hours prior to exercise, that's 60 grams of sodium bicarbonate which is a lot of sodium bicarbonate. And the first time you choke it down, you may not hate it that much. Uh, And pro tip, if you go that route, dissolve it in hot water, not cold water. It dissolves a lot better in in hot water and you'll just be left with a lot of grit if you go with cold water. Um, But yeah, you can choke it down the first day and be like, well, that was generally unpleasant, but I can stick with it. But by like your fourth or fifth day, Of supplementing with that much sodium bicarbonate you're gonna fucking hate it like it's it is one of the more unpleasant supplements i have ever experimented with just on a day-by-day basis Um, and that's the only reason i mention (laughs) hyperventilating because it's it's not a perfect replacement by any means um, like you'll, you'll probably need to do a fair amount of testing on yourself to kind of dial in the appropriate amount and there is some risk. Maybe you'll get lightheaded. I'm not necessarily recommending you do that, but like, by God, if, if I were trying to get these benefits and it was like, okay, you you either need to assume some risk by trying to hyperventilate the appropriate amount, or you need to start supplementing with sodium bicarbonate every day. I'm going to roll the dice on hyperventilating because it's just the the day-to-day process of supplementing with sodium bicarbonate is just incredibly unpleasant.
0: Yeah. Another thing to keep in mind is it is also an enormous dose of sodium. Oh, yeah, that's true. If you're going to be having it every day or before every training session, if you're someone who... It, not everybody genetically responds the same way, but if your blood pressure is very responsive to a high sodium diet, that would probably not be the supplementation strategy for you because it, it's an enormous dose of sodium it, when we're talking about ergogenic yeah, it's, doses.
1: It's like twenty grams of sodium.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's enormous. So so if if you're sensitive, if your blood pressure tends to increase on a high sodium diet, that that's going to be a problem. And I will I will admit I've actually never tried sodium bicarbonate supplementation give it
1: a shot dude
0: so uh, the the thing that kills me though like i I don't want to forget to mention this because it it loops back to the betaine the, the betaine conversation i often write articles that show which supplements may have ergogenic effects and i think everybody assumes that because they've been conditioned by the supplement industry like I'm either just a total piece of shit who's just like cashing in on these articles, like, oh yeah, Eric wants me to think all supplements work, or that I personally use a ton of supplements, neither are true. You couldn't possibly buy a supplement that would make me a penny. And I actually don't take that many day to day uh, at all. So I, I think it's funny, like if you write an article that just gives an honest appraisal of the literature and just say like, yeah, there's evidence that sodium bicarbonate may work. I feel like everybody just always assumes the absolute worst. But yeah, I've never even tried it.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I am I am very pro-sodium bicarbonate, might have beneficial effects on strength endurance, and very anti-sodium bicarbonate supplementation. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Like, it, it, Cause, it's cause, out there for you. Because yeah. I've tried it, and I got to tell you... I mean, I very well might feel differently, um, if I ever compete in strongman. So at at some point I think I'd like to do a strongman show. There's a lot of like strength endurance type skills being tested in strongman. And I would consider messing around with sodium bicarbonate before event training days to, to try to dial in my, my dosing protocol to make sure I don't have severe GI distress, like on the actual day of competition. Um, and, and I would consider using it for a strongman competition because like, you know, it could directly affect my placing. Um, but, and it would just be like, okay, this is a strategy I am using for competition and it is what it is. Like sometimes like stuff you have to do to compete isn't the most pleasant. Like I don't like cutting weight. I don't like water cutting, but. You know, if I'm like five pounds over my weight class, I'll water cut. It's not fun, but I do it. Uh, And I would view sodium bicarbonate supplementation the same way. But then if there was like an alternate world where I had to water cut before every training session, I would just never train anymore Uh, because (laughs) water cutting fucking sucks. And I view sodium bicarbonate supplementation the same way. Like I would use it for competition. I'd, you know, grit my teeth and, and tough it out. But it is just so incredibly unpleasant to supplement with on a day to day basis that even though I think it is effective and even though it might help my performance in the gym a little bit, I would uh, you could you would have to pay me a substantial amount of money to convince me to take it for all training sessions.
0: Yeah, you you did hit a little close to home there with that uh, water cut metaphor. Wrestling. With wrestling, you are actively training through a water cut probably four or five sevenths of the season (sighs) like if if you're in a pretty challenging weight class i mean you compete every saturday and you're starting to get pretty careful with your water intake by like tuesday you know like you're thinking about it
1: did you did
0: you not water load and then cut um we did, but not intentionally, I mean, we would just I gotcha we would we would weigh in on Saturday, show up at school on Monday, just being a waterlogged puffy overfed <laughs> I mean it was just a mess yeah my my, my wrestling partner uh competed in the one hundred and thirty pound class, dude, he would come in every Monday when we had to weigh in either on Friday or Saturday, every Monday he would come in eighteen pounds overweight. At one thirty, At one thirty, Dude, that's fucked up. Yeah, like he was losing an enormous percentage of his body weight every single week. And unrelated, potentially, I'm not sure if there's a correlation, he also threatened to quit the team every Friday. I think it might have been. (laughs) He he would reach his absolute breaking point every Friday, be like, I'm never doing this again. And we were like, right. But I mean, in seven days, we are going to be right here doing the same thing
1: honestly that's absurd yeah it was wild man
0: so i'm still very curious though you've got this note in here that just says hot content Oh,
1: oh yeah so um i i've i've been working on a project for the last couple of months that i cannot give any details about and if you ask i will refuse to give any details about uh you'll find out eventually i assume but one of the things uh, we were doing as part of that project is we were kind of trying to characterize some um, just like just like what what group level stuff looks like in our literature generally. And one of the things we were looking at is something called Cohen's DZ. So uh, we've talked about Cohen's D effect sizes on on this podcast before. We've written about them on the website. Uh, and a Cohen's D effect size is essentially how large the average change is relative to a pre training standard deviation. So, you know, if you're dealing with a group of people that bench presses uh, 100 plus or minus 20 pounds, and the, the mean increase in bench press strength in a study is 10 pounds, then the Cohen's D effect size is that 10 pound change divided by the 20 pound standard deviation or 0.5. So, there is a similar metric called Cohen's DZ, um, which is sometimes called a signal to noise effect size, where that is the change, the mean change divided by the standard deviation of the change. So, in that same example, if they bench 100 plus or minus 20 pounds pre training and their bench presses increase by 10 plus or minus 5 pounds during training, the Cohen's D effect size is 0.5. The Cohen's DZ effect size is the 10-pound mean change divided by the 5-pound standard deviation of the change, or 2? So that would be the Cohen's DZ. Um, and so one of the things we wanted to see is, kind of within resistance training literature, how variable do gains in strength tend to be? Um, so uh, we found, like, 80-some studies. Um And unfortunately, a minority of the studies in our field actually report Cohen's DZ effect sizes uh, or just report the variability in the change of strength in the first place, which is pretty unfortunate. Um, But of those like 80 some studies, about 20 of them or so reported enough information to calculate Cohen's DZ effect sizes. And we found that the average Cohen's DZ was about one6 and that was remarkably homogeneous. So occasionally we'd see studies that reported Cohen's DZ values of around one. Occasionally studies would report Cohen's DZ values around three. But for the most part, they were they were in like the 1.25 to two range with an average of 1.6. And so we can use that information to get an idea of like, you know, we're not just going to cherry pick one study where results are remarkably homogeneous. We're not just going to cherry pick one study where results are remarkably spread out but kind of across the entire body of resistance training literature at least like a good chunk of that literature um, you can take the inverse of the cohen's dz value to get an idea of how spread out uh, strength gains are in the literature so the inverse of 1.6 is 62 and a half percent or 0.625 and so what that tells you is if you have an idea of how generally effective something is on average for promoting strength gains, and we're talking about like training interventions here, that tells you in general how, how large of a spread of results you should expect. So in other words, to put actual numbers on this, if you know that a certain intervention tends to improve someone's squat by 20 pounds... Uh, within one standard deviation of that, like, you know, about two thirds of the responses you should expect to see, very, very normal responses, would be gains ranging from about seven and a half pounds to about 32 and 5 half And then if you want to go one more standard deviation out, you should expect changes ranging from about negative five pounds to 45 pounds. Um, so I, I'm putting those numbers out there because I think that degree of variability is somewhat surprising to people. Like, I think when people read research, especially because, as I mentioned, most studies don't report the standard deviation of change scores. And so it's... Unless a study, say, has a figure that shows all individual results, I think a lot of people aren't fully aware of how variable training responses are. Um, And so, like... I think a lot of people kind of think about this for themselves when they're training, they see like, Oh, on average people are improving by, you know, maybe they put a hundred pounds in their on their total in their second year of training. And I only put 60 pounds on my total in my second year of training. Am I broken? Um, and like, no, that's, that's incredibly normal. That's comfortably within one standard deviation of the average. That's not something to be, uh, upset about. And kind of on on the flip side, it's like, oh, this, we're seeing someone who's gaining strength at twice the rate of everyone else. Is that suspicious? Like, are they doing a shit ton of drugs and not telling anyone? It's like, well, no, like that's, that's comfortably within two standard deviations of the mean. Um, If you're starting to see people say gaining strength at like five times the average rate, like, yeah, that's, that's kind of weird. But uh, anyway, I, I think that's, useful information just to know for yourself as a lifter or as a coach, kind of the, the degree of variability you should expect to see, like how much variability is normal. And then um also I, I think this would be useful for any like researchers listening to this podcast. If you're if you're planning out uh some sort of training intervention for a study and I don't know that uh I don't know that G power actually gives you the option to, um, use like Cohen's DZ to, to plan this stuff, um, which is unfortunate, but y- you could, you could do this by hand. Um, or I'm sure there's like a package in R that does this for you. But if you're doing power calculations and you're interested in how large of a sample you should need to recruit to see a significant mean effect, um, knowing the Cohen's DZ value will help with that calculation. Um, so a Cohen's DZ value of about 1.6 seems to be standard for uh, resistance training studies. So that's just a, a little piece of information you can file away for doing power calcs.
0: On that topic, um, I actually ran, a, I came across a paper the other day that was talking about doing power calculations for interactions. Uh, and it's It was a really good paper i think it was by daniel lakens and uh caldwell maybe Mm -hmm. but uh, it was very good and it was kind of a a, kind of a tutorial type thing where it walks you through like okay what kind of an interaction are you expecting because there's a couple different ways to do it so if you are uh currently sweating about a power calculation that you're supposed to do I'm going to try to find that and put it in the show notes because it was a very good a very good paper, very informative. Um, I will say, I, I always try to keep the statistics talk to a minimum on the show. But every time we do it, I get a lot of positive feedback. I, I feel like there's an extremely vocal group of 16 people out there who are just like, come on, please do stat stuff today.
1: Yeah, we, we actually meme on ourselves. And every time we talk about statistics on the show, the very next segment will be like, all right, for the five people still listening, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but we have actually never gotten a complaint about statistics talk on the podcast, and we do get a lot of positive feedback. So this may just become a statistics podcast.
0: It's honestly the only positive feedback I get. <laughs> like, and I'm, I'm not even kidding. Uh, I, I, think, I think the people who like it are so worried that it's going to go away that when they hear it, they're like, okay, I, I got to make sure that they know that we like it. Um, all right. Well, we're pretty deep into the episode. I think it's probably time to play us out uh, unless there's a, a Q&A question you really wanted to talk about.
1: Nah, that's good with me.
0: Okay. So we got a few off-topic questions to play us out. I know that people were, were kind of fond of our fireside chat episodes. So uh, we, we don't want to completely abandon the off-topic questions altogether. This one killed me. Uh, so this was funny. Uh, Josh submitted this question to the question portal. It's, uh, what is it, tiny.cc slash SBSQA? Yes. Yeah. Um, so he, he, I'll just read it verbatim. Will you guys rescind your statements about liking Rage Against the Machine now that it's come out that they are actually leftists? I was shocked at this news, uh, as, as was my favorite conservative icon, <laughs> Paul Ryan. Um, you guys are a bastion. <laughs> of good Christian family values as exemplified by Greg's stellar stance on sticky icky, which is unfortunately slang for marijuana. Um, And that doesn't mesh with rage against the machine. Stronger by science has been my church's favorite Christian podcast, and it would mean the world to us. So um, this was awesome. Apparently with all of the political stuff going on right now, um, I I, I guess the backstory is that like, I, I think Tom Morello has been really vocal about, about politics lately. I mean,
1: he always has been. Well, yeah, yeah. As has, I mean, like, holy shit! If you don't, if you don't know where Zach De La Rocha <laughs> yeah. stands on political issues, you've never seen an interview with Zach De La Rocha.
0: But yeah, so I, I think the backstory. I'm pretty sure I heard something about this, but somebody like called out Tom Morello, like, stick to the guitar riffs, buddy. Like, we're not here for the politics, and like, apparently, a large number of people just realized that Rage Against the Machine. If you look several layers beneath the surface of their lyrics, there is some politically motivated uh, terminology in there. Uh, a lot of people were shocked to hear this, but like it's not even subtext. No, it is the most clear thing. <laughs> like, like man, imagine when they go back to their system of a down records. You know, <laughs> they might also get some hints of political commentary there. But no, I mean, like Rage Against the Machine. I think if you were to ask them, they would say that we're a political action committee who also plays music.
1: Correct. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, Well, the whole reason the band... Well, not the whole reason, but one of the main reasons the band broke up is like, they're anarchists. Like, that's, <laughs> that is that is their political sway, and they were hoping they could make music for the revolution, and, it, you know, throughout the 90s, like, that was... Uh, i don't think there has ever been an era in american politics more characterized than political complacency and like they basically just like blackpilled themselves because they're like we're trying to wake people up to the like all of the bad stuff going on in the world and like they come and jam out to our records and then don't go out in the world and actually do anything um and so like yeah one of the reasons they split up is because like they're like well this this obviously hasn't been an effective political strategy. I guess we should move on and do something else.
0: Yeah, I mean it just kills me because there apparently there was a bunch of people who were just like, man, I don't think I can listen to them anymore knowing that they lean left. I had no idea.
1: Yeah, and, and I like that this uh commenter mentioned Paul Ryan because like in an interview in maybe 2014 or so, um, the interviewer asked Paul Ryan like what kind of music he was into. Uh, and he said his favorite band was Rage Against the Machine. And Tom Morello just came out and was just like, fuck you. You are the machine we're <laughs> raging against. Don't listen to our music anymore. Um, and like, it's shocking to me. Like, how, how could Paul Ryan like Rage Against the Machine? It's know, honestly man. surprising.
0: I don't know. So we we've got another off topic question. This one hits close to home today. It, the two questions that we got about just generally being night owls and consuming coffee the two kind of tend to be related in many cases but uh so the first question uh i don't know how to pronounce that name how would you pronounce that name c i a n cian that sounds good to me but the question is uh you know they sometimes have to stay up late working and their focus tends to drop off so what do we do to to be able to work late at night and still kind of stay focused and be productive. Uh, The other question, uh, same same person asked this question as well. Um, Given that we work pretty long days and we like coffee, what's our favorite way of drinking coffee? Um, They mentioned their favorite is AeroPress. They said this question is only for Greg, mostly, uh, because based on my cooking and eating habits, they're assuming that I just eat spoonfuls of, uh, <laughs> of instant coffee, which is actually not true. But um, in any case, the reason I say this hits close to home today, this is kind of our busy time of month. I did happen to be up till like 4 a.m. last night. And so you might have noticed a couple Easter eggs in the podcast episode, such as when I said that a car might be missing two out of its three hubcaps. Should have been four, you know? So, yeah, th- there is something uh, I'm starting to think that potentially sleep deprivation might influence mental acuity to some extent. But if I don't read the research, I'll never have to confront it. So that, that's a good thing. So Greg, when you're working late at night, how do you stay focused? Uh, and then you can also answer the question about, about coffee as well.
1: Uh, yeah, so for staying focused at night, one, it's not that hard for me, um, mostly because like I do have a relatively extreme circadian rhythm. Uh, I feel... Uh, <laughs> I'm probably a little bit more degenerate with my sleep cycle than I should be, but like I, I've tested this multiple times throughout my life, um, at various points in my life, and I do find that I personally feel best when I go to bed at three or four and wake up somewhere between 11 and one. Um, so that's not what I'm currently doing, like, I am keeping. Uh, kind of a more normal sleep schedule actually um but i I do consistently feel better when i when I am on that later schedule um and so like if if it's just like I'm working up until two or three a m that's not hard like that's <laughs> that's when I feel good um I have also talked about how I'm quite a fan of stimulants in general, and one of the things that helps me work up to that point in in the evening and not just like completely ruin my sleep is after after probably like four p.m or so uh like three or four p.m. I'll switch over from caffeine to nicotine um because nicotine has a has a shorter half-life and so I find that like you know if, if I'm working to 4 a.m and I have a cup of coffee or an energy drink or something at midnight or 1 a.m. I do have a lot of issues getting to sleep, uh, you know, when I go to bed two or three hours later. Um, and I find that it, it impacts how long it takes to get to sleep. My quality of sleep, I'll feel tired the next day. Whereas, uh, since nicotine has a shorter half life, I can use that up to about an hour, hour and a half before I go to bed. Um, And I find that it doesn't impact how long it takes me to fall asleep. Um, There's some research suggesting that it could impact sleep quality. I haven't, you know, done like a a sleep study to see if like objectively my sleep quality is worse, but it feels like it's fine and I still wake up feeling good and rested. Um, So yeah, like just a combination of having kind of a naturally extreme circadian rhythm and switching over from caffeine to nicotine um, later in the day, uh, helps me work late at night and, and be productive and still sleep well.
0: You know, with me, when it comes to trying to stay focused late at night, one of the things I try to do is I think it's very difficult to force focus. And so what I try to do is eliminate the need to do so. So for example, if I'm like, okay, this literally must be done tonight before I go to sleep, but I am not in a place to focus right now, I'll take a little walk or maybe I'll take a short nap, you know, but, but I won't just stare at the screen until my eyes bleed and say, come on, Eric, focus, because that just doesn't seem to work very well in my experience. So what I try to do is, uh, you know, if I'm trying to make it work, but it doesn't necessarily have to be done that night, then I'll say, just cut it, go to bed, pick it up in the morning." you'll have more efficient work in the morning, and it'll be better work. So ultimately, that that's a net positive. But if it must get done that night, like I said, I'll, I'll say, listen, you don't have the focus right now. And that's okay. Let's take a walk. Let's grab a snack. Let's take a nap. Let's do whatever we have to do to uh, to get to the point where we have that focus. And at a certain point, uh, you can't necessarily stimulate your way there, you know, especially like, Getting overstimulated is not a good thing for focus, right? I mean, that it gets even even more challenging for me if I'm like, listen, I'm just going to drink coffee, you know, more and more and more and more. Then I struggle to focus just because the stimulation level is too high. So, so th- that might be helpful. Uh, what What about coffee, Greg? What's What's your go to for coffee? How How do you make it?
1: Yeah. So uh, I also use an Aeropress. Um, I. <laughs> I use an air Press because my light my uh, my wife likes an AeroPress. I'm not particularly picky when it comes to coffee. Uh, this this may offend people listening to this episode, but I don't love coffee. I guess um, I uh, I find it generally inoffensive. I don't dislike it, but uh, yeah, I mean it's fine. Uh, it has caffeine. That's the main thing I drink it for. Um, I do, I do prefer the coffee that comes out of an AeroPress to just like a drip coffee maker. Like I do think it tastes better, but I, I still don't love it. I mean, I'm drinking it for the caffeine. Um, and yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I am the furthest thing possible from a coffee snob. So I do like AeroPress coffee, but my opinion is not one that should particularly matter.
0: You know, for me, I I do like coffee quite a bit. So I, I think, um, the attention I pay to the quality of my coffee and my beer is way different from the way that I view food. Like food, I'm like, whatever, I'll eat I'll eat whatever is available. Coffee and beer, though, I do like to have nice things. But uh, w- when it comes to coffee, I did at one point try to get into using the French press. I was like, I'm going to step it up a notch. And I just didn't like it as much. Um, I don't know. I like drip coffee, but, but I tried to... Uh, Actually, the, the grocery store I go to, their store brand, the grounds that they, you know, they, they, the coffee beans that are kind of pre-ground that you can get, they're pretty damn good. Like they're, they're, in my opinion, a major step up from like the Maxwell House and Folgers that got me through grad school. So that, that has been the main extent of my lifestyle creep uh, post-grad school is I've moved up from the absolute cheapest coffee you could possibly get to the second cheapest coffee tier you could possibly get, but for me, based on my food habits, that's a huge step.
1: No, I I agree. Like Folgers Maxwell House is just absolutely terrible. Um, one of the things I'm fond of saying is, if the best part of waking up is Folgers in your cup, you should talk to a therapist. Like <laughs> you've got you've got some some issues to work through.
0: Yeah, that I think that's true, and I think that's probably a great way to end the show. Um, So that does it for this week's episode. Uh, Like I said, we've got one more episode before our summer break. That episode is going to be coming out on July 2nd. Uh, Until then, take care and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit strongerbyscience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.